life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Tomorrow evening after 10 o'clock, looking at a great New Zealand band, a three-piece. They were called the Gordons, and there's an amazing story behind them. They are touring New Zealand with their new name, effectively. It'll all be made plain tomorrow through a lot of shearing noise. Uh, what I'm talking about, the band is bailed to space. They, uh, it's very, very rare to be able to go and see them. Anyway, the story of the Gordons, how they got together. Here's Gordon's founder, John Halverson. Well, I just finished art school in Christchurch. I was about to embark on a career doing graphic design when I was doing posters for Jim Wilson, and uh, he booked me in to do a show at the Hillsborough, assuming that I had a band, which I didn't. So I had three days, basically, to get a band together. I hadn't met Alistair or Brent yet, but <laughs> they were the first guys that came along and it just worked, so we didn't really interview anyone else. Wow. And uh, three days later we were on stage supporting the WizKids at the Hillsborough. After how many days' practice? Three days. Three days. Yeah, in which we wrote the songs. And Did you know them before that? I'd never met them before that, no. It is quite a story. They were about the loudest thing that ever happened in New Zealand music, but not just loud, fabulous. Uh, They might be a difficult listen if you don't like ferocious music. Um, Just a little testimony. Well, while we can, um, Stuart Page, a fellow traveller with the Gordons, on how loud they were in Christchurch. I remember once they used the Gladstone in-house PA just as fallback for Brent, and then they, they... they brought in like truckloads of cabinets and had this big wall. It was pretty impressive, they were amazing. There were some weirdos that used to actually sit inside the big bass bins. You know, like, look how tough I am, you know, they'd sit right in the bin. Jesus. So, yeah, this, yeah, there were some crazy guys here. <laughs> uh, it may not be your cup of tea, but it's a, it, is, it is a lot of people's. I can prove it the inaugural Independent Music New Zealand classic album of all time was the Gordon's first album and they're a neat story that's tomorrow after 10 o'clock I put some work into it that's why I'm plugging the hell out of it okay next up James Crook will take us to the movies we're having a look at a couple of big blockbusters good evening everybody you're tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute's here to help you avoid one and a half hours, usually, of wasted life if it's a dud. Um, and also to point you to something that you should go and see and lock yourself in a dark room and watch. Um, we're talking the movies with James Crute. G'day, how are you? Good, Graham. How are you? Fabulous, thank you. All right, Thanks, this good. week uh, we're looking at some biggies. Uh, first up, Mega Time Squad. Yes, the biggest thing to come out of Thames. Oh, I'm trying to think. Was there an all-black from Thames? Probably. Anyway... 
Was, was it an all black from the gateway to the Coromandel? Oh, look, I'm trying yeah, to think. The Swamp Foxes. It would have been one <laughs> yeah, of the... Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. They had a close Ranfurly Shield match, I think, one day in 1955. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I think they played the Lions and did reasonably well. There might have been, I don't know. This is a long-winded way of saying I don't know. And sorry Exactly. For... Well, this is a time travel comedy written by a guy who works at the Pack and Save there. I oh, love that. This is, this is so Kiwi. A guy called Tim Van Dammen, who's done a couple of... Oh, he's mainly famous, actually, as a music video creator uh, when he's not in teams in, in Auckland and other places. But he made a film a few years ago which was a distinctly kind of Kiwi dystopian take on uh, Will Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which was kind of interesting and weirdly wonderful. Um, and this is, uh, this is his first uh, stab at screenwriting his own project. And this is kind of, I don't know, it's, a, it's kind of an odd hybrid in a way. It's a kind of throwback to those action comedies of the 1980s, but also the Farrelly Brothers movies of the 90s, he says he was inspired by. There's kind of little bits of Back to the Future 2, sort of Big Trouble in Little China, uh, bits of Highlander, and it's all about this sort of uh, low-level drug courier in Thames who uh, comes across uh, or tries to go out on his own, attempts to rob the sort of local Chinese emporium, which is you know, home to the triads, essentially, who've set up in Thames, uh, and comes across this artefact which will help him travel through time. Uh, essentially, rather than creating paradoxes and stuff, it creates lots of multiple versions of himself. So a bit like that old Michael Keaton movie, Multiplicity. Uh-huh. Um, and sort of hijinks ensue. Oh, okay. Look, I think if you enjoyed Wellington Paranormal, which uh, a lot of Kiwis certainly did, that brilliant Police 10-7 yeah. <laughs> mockumentary, yeah. Um, then I think you'll like this. It very much has that kind of Kiwi deadpan humour. Uh, it's also got Johnny Bruff as a, a the local crime lord in uh, pretty, you know, funny form, that's for sure, and there's some good one-liners amongst it. But oh, yeah, lovely. Yeah, look, you know, it's certainly more a comedy than it is uh, a timey-wimey sort of uh, thriller or that kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I think it's uh, definitely got a clever script. And it's um, made a bit of a splash at various film festivals so far. It debuted in Montreal, I think, last month before uh, getting to the film festival here. And now it's on release around the country uh, from next Thursday. Okay. It's almost a sort of thing I think feel is being carved out, like you mentioned, paranormal, this sort of thing. I love it when you mix up, but it's because in the past we haven't really associated sci-fi with the New Zealandness we see around us much. No, that's true. Um, there was a there was one that kind of did this sort of fantasy festival circuit. Now I can't remember what it was called. It was like this giant boulder. This fake giant boulder is so heavy, or something. This giant Pepe Mache boulder is so heavy, uh, which was kind of a pastiche of sort of Star Trek and all those fifties and sixties movies. But you're right. It didn't quite have that. New Zealandness about it that oh. this does. I mean, this was, you know, Van Damen said that he very much wanted to make a, a Kiwi kind of movie. And I guess, you know, we had the Kiwi version of Bridesmaids earlier this year with the Breaker Upperers. Yeah. Um, you know, Sione's Wedding very much did the kind of Kiwi comedy idea. I've, the, the film that this most reminded me of was a movie from last decade that not many Kiwis have heard about called Tongan Ninja which was essentially a piss take of all the Bruce Lee and other 
um, chop socky movies from the 1970s. Nice, yeah. Which was one of the early sort of Jermaine Clement um, writing things. So yeah, that, I mean that's kind of the ability of of what those guys have is to take genres and things that we're familiar with globally and put a Kiwi spin on them. Yeah, and the trick to making it really good is don't try too hard. <laughs> Just let it happen. I reckon it's good. I think it's kind of, can we almost describe it as the Christopher Guest approach? Yeah. Like almost trying to be serious about it, but drawing the comedy from that seriousness of the people involved. Yeah, Christopher Guest. Do you know Guest. what I mean? Yeah, Christopher The actors are committed to playing their characters straight, but because of that, the situations and the dialogue is brilliantly, hilariously funny. Yeah, Christopher Guest, just to tell people, Spinal Tap, one of the greatest movies ever made, best in show, that sort of thing. Did I mean, you, arguably did, isn't Flight of the Concords the TV series, just Spinal Tap with a New Zealand sensibility. Mm, I know, it's a different kind of music. No, so different, maybe, no, it's, no, maybe no. it's more a mighty wind. Dif- different way of doing it, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, Spinal Tap was far more on-the-fly, unscripted, workshopped. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, just an interesting thing about Christopher Guest, who famously in Spinal Tap, this one, um, this one goes up to 11. Um, he's a Lord Peer. Oh, yes, that's right. He is actually a real life... I know he's American, but he is actually a real life... Uh, Christopher... Baron Christopher Lord Guest or something. <laughs> and he's really quite keen. He's not... Um, he takes it seriously. He wanted to come back to London and, and, and sit in the House of Lords or something crazy like that. That's right. Of course, there was a famous thing on that brilliant uh, UK TV series Taskmaster just recently where somebody bought the host, Greg Davies, a lordship for a pound or something like that, <laughs> or 20 pounds maybe. So uh, there are there are proper ways and nefarious ways. But you're right, no, he is. Christopher Guest is uh, a, a real-life lord. Yeah. That's pretty cool. A real-life baron something or other. Yeah. I, it means you own a castle. I think. You get you get a castle somewhere with a moat. Well, that's what you want, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Oh, the Thames Valley, the great players. Who would forget the great Jack Duffy? Uh, <laughs> Mick Lomas. Oh, and there was that Ranfurly Shields uh, match against North Auckland, I recall that. Oh, it was... Uh, that Why was the hell are we league. looking at Australian rugby league players then? We should, just be, <laughs> should just get a whole lot of boys from Thames, round them up. Yeah. Hanson just needs to hold some trials down there, doesn't he? Yeah. Now, Bob O'Day of the Swamp Foxes, 53 to 54, and Kevin Barry, not... I don't think the uh, the boxing senior junior or either no yeah. uh, 1962 to 64 remain the only Thames Valley players to have represented the All Blacks while playing for the Union. So there you there go. There you go. There yeah. you go. He was Super. a oh, day marvelous flanker. Surprise selection <laughs> though at the time in '53. That's how it goes. All right. Uh, okay, James. Uh, Let's switch horses and yeah. talk uh, crazy rich Asians. And yes, that is the title of the movie. Good. This is this is this year's. Oh, what do we call it? The Hollywood sleeper, the the comedy from left field that nobody saw coming. There's always one. You know, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, there was my big fat Greek wedding. Last year it was uh, the big. Big sleep, big sea. I've forgotten what it's called now. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, there's yeah, there's, there's always one each year, and this is definitely this year's one. Look, it is the first 
Western production to have an all-Asian cast since 1993's The Joy Luck Club. What do they mean by Asian? That's well, a hell of a big area. Yeah, exactly. They mean Chinese slash Japanese, that particular part of Southeast Asia. Okay, well, I, think, okay. I think you throw in Malay and Singapore as part of that as well. You don't. We're not talking India. Okay. That, Essentially, yeah, no, that's a very good point, but it's the American definition of Asia rather than everybody else's. Or oh, the British, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And even then, it's Dodge, isn't it? Because I don't see any way. But anyway, this this is a, 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 a it's a lot of fun. It, it's a it's a, a real kind of riot. It is definitely a celebration of culture. It is uh, like those, I guess, British comedies about. Uh, their, their part of Asia is in India um, you know you think of things like Bend It Like Beckham it's very much the traditional values versus the modern and the clash between the two and the, and the comedy you get out of that yeah. so, so, so there's definitely uh, you know similarities to things like East is East and Bend It Like Beckham um, and I guess to a degree you know my big fat Greek wedding as well but you know there's just something exuberant about it the other thing is which I found kind of interesting and most surprising it's probably the first Hollywood movie I've seen in a long time where they actually celebrate a destination outside of the US you know all the time now any movie that's set on foreign soil is all about was essentially has this undertone of you shouldn't go there because you're going to get kidnapped or something bad will happen to you. Okay. Usually involves Liam Neeson. He's consistently been going to different parts of the world, denigrating the tourism industry by getting kidnapped. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or someone in his family getting kidnapped. Yeah, it's an interesting observation. Yeah. This this is an unabashed celebration. It's a two-hour ad for Singapore, Graham. Wow. But I loved it, <laughs> even though it makes you want to. Book a flight, you know, that, and it's not all about. Well, there's certainly no scenes of people ending up in jail for spitting or, um, you know, chewing gum or cigarettes or anything yeah. like that. Um, but it's just look, you know, the opulence that is there now. I guess it's, I, I guess Hong Kong probably made a movie like this within different spheres 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Mm. You know, this is just Marina Bay Sands Hotel, the, you know, Botanic Gardens there, all those amazing sites, all the amazing food, you know, and, and it's a tale all about uh, new, new money versus old money kind of thing as well. Mm. Um, Singapore, it's a strange place. Have you ever experienced the news media over there? I don't know that I've had. I've watched some football over there, and I also know they have this weird thing of uh, showing or simulcasting all the US reality TV shows live. So Survivor will play at like three o'clock in the afternoon there oh, on Prime, yeah. on on the you know one of the major channels. Oh, that's interesting. I was just uh, I just noted that it gives you that funny queasy feeling of an authoritarian uh, uh, one one party state where there's uh, certainly no not that vision of it here. That's for sure. Right, right. You get things on the news uh, today. The glorious government has <laughs> showed again how successful and wonderful it is, um, and how much it loves the people of Singapore by. Painting a road sign or something. It's very Kent Brockman, isn't it? I, for one, uh, embrace our new insect leaders and pledge my load. <laughs> yeah. Okay, just the deal with Christopher Guest. What a marvellous, marvellous screenwriter, actor, the whole lot. Uh, he holds a hereditary British peerage. He is the fifth Baron Hayden Guest.
Wow. Uh, initially active in the House of Lords, career cut short by the House of Lords Act 99. It removed the right of most hereditary peers to a seat in Parliament. Uh, when using his title, he is normally styled Lord Hayden Guest. There you go. So there you go. Love it. I, I wonder if he wants people to call him Lord. I don't know. Well, he uses it. Yeah, I attempted to I attempted to call one of the UK's newest dames a dame, and she laughed at me. <laughs> uh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh well. Why but then it's Emma Thompson, after all. Why would someone laugh at you for doing that? Oh well, she she just thinks that the whole thing's a laugh. Yeah, but, but she wasn't great. to know that you <laughs> exactly knew that of her. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, how's the football on the weekend? Oh, yeah, you know, we've got uh, a couple of games to go. Then the season will, will end up comfortably mid-table. Uh, we, we had a spectacular draw with uh, one of... Uh, with the uh, All Whites team, they have about four ex All Whites in their team, but uh, a mar- marvellous rear guard action from Coastal Spirit over 35s <laughs> managed to get us a draw. They were not happy. They were claiming the ball crossed the line. It never crossed the line. Who the hell was in from the All Whites? Was it Ironside? <laughs> Buzzer Mackay. I can't say, but most of them were like one one cap wonders. That's for sure. Oh, no. There are rumours that Sigmund occasionally turns <laughs> up, though. Oh, watch out! Watch out for the studs. He can go monster. You know that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Although no lack of commitment. All right. Yep. That's been our cinema and football review, and just a heads up for something that should be and probably is um, one of the great prides of. Christchurch and a band called the Gordons who went on to be bailed to space. We're doing a thing on them tomorrow evening. Uh, we've got exclusive interviews. I hate using that word, but uh, I've been encouraged to use it because we did them. Uh, with uh, bassist John Halverson, Roger Shepard, uh, Stuart Page. Um, they're touring and they're called Bail to Space Now. Uh, a different band, but the same people. And it's a fascinating story from the early 80s. Uh, they were the Gordons. And, James, a neat little thing. Uh, people say the best place to hear the Gordons yeah. was at, um, oh, God, what were the names of the pub? Christchurch or Dunedin? Yeah. Christchurch. Uh, the, was it one pub? Um, you'd, you'd go to there. Was it one pub? If they were playing at the other pub down the road, <laughs> because they were that loud, it was, oh, yeah. it was just a crazy thing. Yeah, sorry, I forgot the names. It's just a no, no. mental block. Didn't go up there. Anyway, that's tomorrow night. Um, you ever heard of the Gordons? I have heard of them. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's my Dunedin upbringing, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, James. Thank you very, very much for that. And what we've looked at today is. Uh, the Crazy Rich Asians, and uh, the other one, the time-travelling thing. Mega Time Squad. Mega Time Squad. That does sound good. Ah. Weekend Variety. Wireless. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of... Max Cryer is with us. Hello, Max. Yes, indeed, and good evening to you as well. Um, I always enjoy it when I get the notes. I never get a uh, heads up for the notes. You don't email them to me, Max, and I actually don't want you to because it takes away the surprise. Well, I like surprising you. Yeah. Oh, my God. 
Okay. Well, I want, before we start, yeah. I, I have something I want to tell you about. Um, last week, we were talked about the word plastic, which, as you recall, is derived from the ancient Latin word for moulding. Mm. And I mentioned the eminent New Zealand surgeon Harold Gillies, who practised as a surgeon during World War One. Now, a listener with an historically accurate ear reminded me that Harold Gillies had tutored his cousin, Archie McIndoe. He tutored Archie McIndoe, who also became extremely proficient at restorative plastic surgery in Britain and was a consultant to the health department during World War II at the Queen Victoria Hospital, where he, McIndoe, continued to develop many of the techniques of modern surgery, caring for RAF airmen who suffered from disfiguring facial injuries. Now, Archie McIndoe seriously wanted his patients to be returned to feeling good about themselves, and from his tenure, the patients became known as the guinea pig club. So, in fact, there were two, I repeat, two eminent surgeons who contributed to the development of plastic surgery. We conflated the both. To both New Zealanders, and our listener describes them both as amazing key and both were knighted, Sir Archie McIndoe and Sir Harold Gillies. Well, thank you very much for sending that through. Uh, Nice bit of feedback. Um, And and worthy, of course, very... um, Well, it is extraordinary that two men men with that relationship um, should become world famous in their skill. Yeah. All right. Our word of the week. Well, we're we're going to visit an English village, which in the Doomsday Book of... 1086 was called Rocheberry, and its name later modified into Rockerby, but then the name modified again into Rugby. Mm. Now, for 300 years after that, there was very little awareness of that town or the boys' school, but in 1876, an unheard-of man called Matthew Bloxham wrote that he had met, wait for this, an anonymous informant who wouldn't identify himself. And he told Mr. Bloxham that he remembered somebody calling William Webb Ellis at rugby school who had been seen over 50 years earlier, 1824, to pick up the ball and run with it. Now, later, Bloxham unexpectedly changed tack and he remembered the incident from 50 years earlier was now not 1824 but 1823. Then, unbelievably, Bloxham went to bed and woke up the next day and came up with a third date and moved the picking up the ball and running with it to 1825. Now, this caused absolutely no interest at all with anybody. Um, Ellis had died in uh, 1872 before Mr Bloxham started remembering things, but the Old Boys Association of Rugby felt impelled to check on the veracity of this extraordinary anonymous informer and about Ellis doing a clutch and run. They could find in the records of their Old Boys Association not one single witness, not a solitary written word, not even a syllable of hearsay evidence to support the story. All they could find was that Ellis left rugby school, went to Oxford University and, wait for this, became a representative cricketer and then an Anglican clergyman. Finally, the international rugby organisations around the world have now had to concede that there is absolutely no evidence whatever that William Webb Ellis had anything to do with picking up the ball and running with it. Oh, he's a sporting unicorn. Well, it's sort of Doesn't sad. Doesn't really exist. No one's found him. 
Oh, no, they found him all right. He was a prominent... But not running with the ball in no, no, the no, said no. They, legendary they, manner. He became a prominent Anglican, sir, and um, there was a report of him. He made a speech in London in his later years, which was much publicised in the newspapers about his, his religious point of view. Oh. Never a hint of where he went to school or what he did when he was there. So even the International Rugby Board has sort of had to concede that the story... Simply, well, they're saying there is doubt. <laughs> what right. that means is that it isn't true. Right, and there it's sad. A, there's a lack of evidence there where you think there might be if it was actually a momentous thing. And if anybody could track it down, the people of England would do that because yeah. the, the Old Boys Association of Rugby School is quite powerful. And a lot would depend on the... Uh, a lot would be riding on it if they could. Yes, it doesn't for a moment reflect on the importance or the skill of the game. Of course not. Um, it just is an interesting adjunct that everyone has told everybody else for years that this boy picked up the ball and run with it. There's a rather embarrassing statue of him doing it. And um, that, was, what can you do with a statue that's turned out to be not true? Well, they do the same thing that they do with Robin Hood. <laughs> yes, he's a bit vague as well. <laughs> but at least there isn't a school or a game named after him. <laughs> no, I suppose not. Plenty of movies and stuff like that, though. Okay. Uh, and let's get on to your questions. If you want to ask Ma Max anything to do with the English language, words, their meaning, their origin, feel free to go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's an email form there. You can go to the Facebook page, ask there. I forward all these on uh, to Max. He gets his nose in the books. And you can also write regular old snail mail, as we call it now, and that is P.O. Box triple eight zero remembered this week triple eight zero simon street auckland all right so how's the inbox max we've got dead on means well, right this week's pretty full i have to say why um a listener was doing a crossword puzzle and the clue for exactly right uh, the clue was exactly right and the correct fill-in was dead on mm. and he says how does it have any sense of navigation dead reckoning well um not, there's a similar association. Dead on has been found in use since the 1880s. It's associated with the marksmanship on target because in that context, the term dead has been used as an adjective since the 1500s, meaning absolute or utter. Now, because something is dead, that's the finish. Whatever it is, it cannot go any further. So a similar expression would be dead on the money, meaning exactly the amount of money. Dead drunk means, would you know what it means, Graham? It means being as drunk as it's possible to be. All right. But maybe somebody... You're doing, looking at me like that for. <laughs> maybe if someone's doing an impersonation of Elvis Presley, if the impersonation is impressive and accurate, it would be called dead on. Right. Exact. Ah, see. yes. Yes. So dead reckoning is the same category, but it's a bit different. It means estimation of the position of a ship or aeroplane by log, compass, etc. when, wait for it, when actual observations are impossible. It can be called deduced reckoning. So there's a school of thought that the term dead reckoning should be D-E-D because it's short for deduced reckoning. But equally... Only if it's come from deduced. Say that again? Only if it's come from deduced. Well, yes, but apparently the experts say that it is deduced reckoning because they haven't got the, the actual material oh. evidence from the ship. So dead on, uh, I tell the listener, is not new. It's been around for 100 years since the 1880s, and it has always meant on target. Right. Okay. Thank you. I hope you're satisfied at home.
Uh, now, the original, the origin of the words gold and jewels. The reason this cropped up was that the listener perceived that very often in history, businessmen who dealt with jewels or traded as goldsmiths were Jewish. I wondered this too. And he asked, is it coincidence that these words begin with Jew? Yeah, jewellery. Is it the thing of and, Jews? And many business, uh, Jewish businessmen are some, called something with gold. Now, oh, short... gold, Neil Diamond. Yes, yes, um, yes. There is yes, silver lots. is yes. another one. But the short answer is there's absolutely no connection at all between the words gold and jewel and being Jewish. The three things are not connected at all. The word jewel has been in English 800 years, meaning an article of value used for adornment. It arrived in the English language after a complicated journey through Old French, and it's believed to be influenced by two ancient Latin words, gaudium, which is a sense of rejoicing, and jocus, meaning that which causes joy. Now, the word gold isn't derived from Latin at all. Its ancestry is hundreds of years older, it's connected to what's called Proto-Indo-European, which is the thought sort of communication thought to have been in use even earlier than 2000 BC. And descendants of that ancient lineage, that language, they had the word G-H-E-L, gael, meaning to shine. Now, that can be found in Dutch, Norwegian, German and English, where we know it as gold. Oh. So the word Jew is more, is much more ancient than all of them. It's derived from the Hebrew word Yehudi, meaning celebrated, and applied to the people of the kingdom of Judah, as mentioned in the Bible books of Samuel and Chronicles. So, although it, it is true that it's not at all uncommon for some surnames to indicate the work of, a ancestor, of an ancestor, for example, Fisher, Carpenter, Potter, Thatcher, Miller, Baker, Cook, Mason, Gardner, Shepherd, Cooper, <laughs> Cooper. There are dozens of them, but Jew is not one of those, and there's no ancestry connection at all. Fletcher, that's one that people don't realise as of someone who makes arrows these days, because there aren't a lot of people who are making arrows. I didn't know that. Tell me more. Fletcher. A Fletcher, mean... a Fletcher is someone who puts the um, the goose, goose feathers at yeah. the end of the arrow and. That's another occupation name. Then. Yeah. Oh, isn't that strange? Fletcher. There's plenty of those. Used to be more of them. There were lots of arrows were necessary. I just hope Cryer isn't one of them. <laughs> Gaudi, oh, Gaudiamus. What was that word you said? Gautua. I know. See, what you've done is you've shaken a memory in my head. Oh. Sitting at assembly and having to sing Gaudiamus integer. You raised on Sumus. But that's Latin. Yeah, I know. That's quite modern. We had to, we had to sing Latin. Compared to Hebrew... What's your problem with that? <laughs> I don't have a problem. I can't sing in Latin. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll take a short break when we return. We <coughs> pardon me. We'll be addressing... When I say we, I mean Max will be addressing pretty ugly. Yeah, it does seem to be a bit of an oxymoron or a contradiction. Loggerheads, are you getting shirty? What's it all? And if we have time, what does creed actually mean? Weekend Variety Wireless. Max Cryer, addressing your questions about the English language. It is vast and wonderful and full of exquisite tools. Oh, thank to you. Pair apart, to pair apart. You don't own the language, Max. But you're saying I tear apart something exquisite. Oh, you can just pair apart with the slightest differences of, of meanings. It's really a good thing. The next one's good. The next word. Pretty ugly. Are we That's on it. to that? 
Yes, because someone asked, why do you hear the combination pretty ugly? Isn't it contradictory? Hmm. Well, it does seem totally contradictory. How can a thing be attractive to look at and at the same time be ugly? Hmm. Well, it's very, very simple, and it's something that the listener has never noticed. It's an example of a weird creature in the English language called oxymoron. Now, an oxymoron is uh, where one half of an expression appears to contradict the other half, and there are dozens. We hear them every day. Here are some quite common oxymorons where the first half contradicts the second half. Here we go. Open secret, small crowd, deafening silence, larger half, act naturally, found missing, liquid gas, bittersweet... Now, you'll notice that all the describing words in those is virtually the opposite of the word it's describing. And you put them together and it intensifies the impact of the second word. Now, when you come across pretty ugly, you're witnessing an oxymoron. The word pretty means attractive and it's taken on a new position as an intensifier. It's deliberately being used in oxymoronic description to make the word ugly sound more intense, just as you can be tired, late, shy... Pretty tired, pretty late, or pretty shy. Mm. In none of those does the word pretty have anything to do with looks. It's been given the secondary job of intensifying the condition it's describing. All right. It's a good word, oxymoron. It does, yeah, it is, isn't it? It's like stupid cow. Stupid cow? Oh, you oxymoron. But you can't say cows are stupid. They manage being cows perfectly well. Yeah, they do. But oxymoron sounds like a stupid cow. Does it? Oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> a moronic ox. Um, and moron in there, I'm putting on the spot. Uh, it's, it's oxymoron. We don't use moron much other than if you're a rather dull person. Well, you don't use it, Graham, because you're Not too kind. Particularly quick. <laughs> All right. Very downputting to call someone a moron. <laughs> yeah, well, there are morons. Um, now... Loggerheads. This is an interesting one. Uh, we often say it, but don't often um, pair it apart to find out how it's made. Once upon a time, there were two utensils known by the name logger. There was a thick block of timber fastened to a horse's leg to prevent it from running away, and that was called a logger. Then during the 1600s, a loggerhead was also a long iron bar with a big knob on the end, which was heated in a fire and then plunged into buckets of tar to loosen it up and make it able to be poured. Scholars will tell us that the block of wood and the iron rod, both used the word logger, were sometimes called into use as weapons during serious discord. So there was a transition in the use of the name, and at the same time it was not uncommon to see two stags or two male goats in angry mood butting and entangling their horns with the opponent. So gradually the term at loggerheads was used to signify a situation which was quarrelsome, argumentative, and did not seem to be progressing. That's the clue. Not one was better, no one was obviously better than the other one. A stalemate. The term was sometimes used in the singular, meaning a stupid person, rather like blockhead. Uh, you'll, find it in, you'll find it in Shakespeare, 1588. Shakespeare has one character saying to another, Ah, you whore-son loggerhead, you were born to do me shame. Your what son? Whore-son, son oh. of a whore. Oh. Shakespeare didn't pull punches. No. Now, when the term gradually came to mean argumentative and disagreeable, 
disagreeable. Weapons weren't involved. There was more a case of two factions in firm opposition about an idea, an ownership, a rivalry. And the word loggerhead crops up in three other completely different applications. There's a turtle called the loggerhead turtle, and a pretty little bird is called the loggerhead shrike, only because those creatures have slightly bigger heads than their relatives. There are also places in Britain called Loggerhead, two villages in England, one in Wales, and as usual, when a town might have reason to claim to be associated with some phrase or other, each town's residents claim that Loggerheads originated in their hometown, all three of the towns. So despite the early citations referring going Loggerheads, etc., one has to say to the people in those towns, I'm sorry, but the word did not originate from your town. The towns were named after the term. Nevertheless, it's rather fun that the use of loggerheads as a place name has been a boon to comedians in England who for years have used lines like, I'm going on holiday, a fortnight at loggerheads with the wife. Oh, nice. And you can't see the capital letter you see no. on there. Do you think that would be Benny Hill or um, Eric Morecambe? Or ten other British comedians. Yes, Arthur Askey. <laughs> okay, uh, feel free to play this game at home. Uh, all you have to do is send Max a question about anything to do with words and their origin or something that might be giving you the jip, which was actually addressed a while ago. Um, you can do it through the Facebook page or... The email's probably easiest from the webpage. And somebody has asked, getting shirty. This is interesting. It's good, is isn't it? Is it just a euphemism for what is obviously shitty? Oh, you mean a, a euphemism for something else? Yeah, like... Well, well that didn't crop gosh up. Gosh darn. Yeah, it didn't crop up in the, in the reading okay. I did. All right. Um, getting shirty means getting angry. It's been in use since the 1800s, and it means getting truculent and ill-tempered. Now, shirty meaning angry has an opposite still surviving expression, keep one's shirt on, meaning don't get annoyed. Now, I have great faith in Eric Partridge. Eric Partridge is a renowned um, etymologist, and he says that the original concept comes from the custom of taking a shirt off before you start a fight. And that's the best answer anyone's ever come up with. Mm. If you're saying to someone you're getting shirt, you keep your shirt on, it means don't take your shirt off because we're not going to have a fight. Something Clark Gable might have done in a movie. Oh, well, he became famous for doing that and the, the, the sale of singlets went down into the trough. That's right. Yes. That, he took his shirt off and didn't have a shimmy. Didn't underneath. have a singlet on and, and no. his shops <gasps> didn't have any custom and nobody wanted to buy singlets. Yeah, he was fit, cut, ready for action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did he ever not have a moustache? Nobody ever cared that he was short. He had everything else going for him. Nobody cared that... Um, who's the Scientologist guy? I can never forget, never remember his name. He's short. Is he? Humphrey Bogart was really, really short. He, had, he? To, he had to stand on boxes when he was standing next to Lauren Bacall. <laughs> oh, that's not true. Yes. <laughs> Tom Cruise, that's the one, isn't it? Tom Cruise. He's the guy... And he's a movie guy. Mission Impossible and stuff like that. Okay. Somebody has asked about what's and all where this comes from. It's this, a, this, this one just seems, should we just move on? We don't know what it means, Max. Say that again, Should Nick? we just move on? Move on? What's and all? We'll move on. You want to hear about what's and all? Oh, okay. Because the listener wants to hear about it. Well, it's one of those things that it falls into a category, and you'll get the category when I tell you the story. 
There's only one story about it, and the proof of the story is a bit thin, but it's what most people are told. Who was Oliver Cromwell? He was Lord Protector of England from 1653 to 1658, and during that time, he commissioned an official portrait to be painted by Sir Peter Lely, who had painted the royal family. Now, Sir Peter's painting style was, as usual at the time, rather flattering to the sitter, especially to royalty, showing them in their best light. Cromwell was known to have a preference of being portrayed as a man of military bearing, but he was opposed to all forms of personal vanity. There grew a legend, there is a legend, that he said to Sir Peter Lely, I desire you would use your skill to paint my picture truly like me and not flatter me at all, but remark all roughnesses, pimples, warts and everything else as you see me, otherwise I will never pay you for it. Now that story's been around for years and it's a very handy way of explaining the situation, but it's been studied and found not to be true. Somehow, Cromwell's supposed instruction to the portrait painter was never mentioned by anyone until over a hundred years later, uh, when the Duke of Buckingham told his architect that Cromwell had instructed the portrait painter to put in the warts. The Duke, who said this, presented no evidence, not one of the one. There have been, would you believe, 100 biographies of Olivia, Oliver Cromwell. 100. Not one of them ever mentions the portrait and warts matter. But... Two major factors grew to help support the supposed incident. The first known citation in print of the phrase, warts and all, emerged in an address given by an American art commentator in Massachusetts in 1824. He didn't nominate any authoritative source. Mr Carey, the uh, commentator, reported that Cromwell's words to his portrait painter had been, paint me as I am, warts and all. Now, that was 150 years after the portrait session, was based on zero evidence, but it caught on and is now frequently offered as an accurate report of what Cromwell said at the time, though it actually isn't. There are two important factors in the sayings being believed. Alpheus Carey's claim that Cromwell said, paint me warts and all, had what the public always wants, rhythm. If the saying falls off the tongue smoothly, it will go from person to person around the world in five minutes. Plus, there's one good thing. When Cromwell died in 1658, in the custom of that time, a death mask was made of his face, and the warts showing on the masks exactly matched the warts shown in Ely's painting, done a few years earlier. So although we don't have 100% evidence, we continue to quote Oliver Cromwell as having said warts and all because A, he did have warts, B, they're all on his portrait, and C, it is on his, they're on his death mask, and D, it has rhythm, and we like saying it. Mm. Funny thing with death masks, you never, right. you never look at your best. No, no, I think not. No, you can't think of giving a cup of tea. You could wake the person up. No, I go. Oh, I'm not looking very well. No, not at all. Not at all well. But you're a long way from your death mask, Graham. Oh, Beethoven's death mask doesn't. Oh, no, nobody's looks good. Okay, uh, what does creed mean? Creed, you know the word. Mm-hmm. Well, the listener particularly mentioned verse 2 of the New Zealand National Anthem, which begins with the line, Men of every creed and race gather here before thy face. Right, right. What does it mean, the listener asks? Well, creed is a set of beliefs that influences the way a person lives and which guides their actions. It's sometimes perceived by Christians to mean just their particular faith and no others. But in fact, the word creed... Sorry? 
typical. In fact, the word creed can be used to describe any form of spiritual belief or sometimes adjusted to a particular way of life. It's faintly surprising that Thomas Bracken wrote that line the way he did because he was born Catholic and most Christians, especially Catholics, tend to regard their belief as absolutely the only valid one and they're a bit vague about the others. But there is Bracken announcing that God will welcome anyone of anyone's belief to these shores, which of course has now happened. There is a prominent Christian presence in New Zealand, at least 12 different kinds, but there are also synagogues, temples for Sikhs, Hindus, Baha'i, Muslims, Ratana, Scientology, which demonstrates the picture which Thomas Bracken wrote in 1876. The people of every creed and race have gathered here. Right. Now, today, August the 25th, um, I look back into history. In 1915, there was a school teaching flying in New Zealand. There were flights over the Auckland Harbour, and pilots trained here flew in World War I, and the Canterbury Aviation Company eventually became the nucleus of the New Zealand Air Force. But there was still one major stone unturned. No one had yet flown across Cook Strait. Oh. But on today's date, August the 25th, 1920, Captain Ewan Dickinson set out flying from Christchurch, heading for Trentham, and arrived there without incident. And he, Ewan Dickinson, became the first person ever to fly across Cook Strait. Successfully. 98 years ago today. Oh. <clears throat> Some people did try and were never seen again. Is that so? so? Yeah, yeah, really sad. That's... um. Actually, one of the outsider tales, Aviators, I think it's called, with Gerard Hindmarsh. It's a very good one. Kind of sad, you know, really industrious folk. Off they go and everyone's waiting at Trentham and waiting and waiting. And how long do you wait? Well, I suppose someone would have a vague idea of what the flight time it should have taken. trust you to be pedantic. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Uh, yes, someone would have known when they'd run out of fuel, but the communication wasn't very good in those days. And you know, did they land in up, up country, down country, and we haven't heard? They must trent them. Well, that's very sad, though, that history tends to to um, pronounce the winners, and Ewan Dickinson was the winner. He was mm. the first one to leave the South Island mm. and arrive in the North Island. Mm. Oh, really? I've got the, I've got the story completely wrong. I really should be taking notes, Max. What did Thank you think? God there's not a test after this. He I'd flew fail. from Christchurch to Trentham, I mean. <laughs> oh, I thought we were going from Australia to Trentham. I was thinking of something else. Oh, you were indeed oh, thinking of something else. me. I hope the people of Christchurch don't mind you think they're Australian. <laughs> Could the jury please disregard that last statement? I <laughs> Indeed. I cede the bench, Your Honour. <laughs> Thank you very much, Max Cryer. Don't forget you can ask Max questions either through Facebook, email, or the post. Emails on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and everything else is there other than you writing something on an envelope, which would be P.O. Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland. Max, thank you.